Thanks for joining us. On this episode, I had the pleasure of sitting down with my friend and teammate, Jolie Panyon. We talked about how she expected to have a very minimal early stage breast cancer diagnosis and treatment, but ended up having a more involved treatment plan. So let's listen in. Welcome to Behind the Pink Ribbon, where we share stories, information, and other content related to breast cancer. My name is Melissa Adams. I am a 12-year genetic breast cancer survivor. I've learned so much through my own journey with breast cancer. I have met some amazing people along the way, many that have become lifelong friends. I have experienced the emotional roller coaster of a breast cancer diagnosis, heartache, anger, frustration, loneliness, and even gratitude. Through this podcast, we will speak to breast cancer survivors, supporters, and healthcare professionals to gain insight and understanding behind the pink ribbon. I'm here with Jolie, an eight-year breast cancer survivor from Phoenix, Arizona. I know Jolie from Dragon Boating. We paddled together on the Phoenix Desert Dragon. So welcome, Jolie. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we appreciate you being here. We're going to go ahead and just dive right in and have a conversation about your breast cancer journey. Uh, So tell me a little bit about your diagnosis. So in 2011, I was diagnosed with stage 2A invasive ductal carcinoma. It wasn't supposed to be that. It was just going to be a stage, an early stage of ductal carcinoma that had not gone to my lymph nodes. And how old were you when you were diagnosed? 42. 42. And you said that it wasn't supposed to be stage 2. Were they... Did they, was there not a lump? Was there? So there was a lump, but all the PET scans had shown that it hadn't, had not spread. But by the time I had surgery, it had gone to my lymph nodes. So that put me in stage 2A, which meant chemotherapy. And in terms of lymph nodes, how many lymph nodes were impacted? Three. Three. Okay. Okay. So that shifted from taking you from one specific stage that they thought you would be in to a different one. What was the time frame between the moment where you started being assessed for potential breast cancer and the time that you were actually diagnosed? Uh, Probably just a week. Wow. But between my diagnosis to surgery was about three weeks. And it had grown that much Mm -hmm. and spread into the lymph nodes in that time frame. Okay. So is there a family history of breast cancer? There's no family history. I do have an aunt that had a postmenopausal breast cancer, and it was the in situ, so it had not spread out of her milk ducts. So that would be the only family history. So that would be kind of like the ductal carcinoma exactly. in situ, which is, it looks on an MRI or a mammogram, I suppose, it looks more like little dots of calcifications. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I only know that because I had that as well. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, so there's no family history. I'm assuming then you probably were not tested for a genetic mutation. We did do genetic testing at the time I was diagnosed and it came back negative. And then I had it done again when my mother passed away of pancreatic cancer. They redid the genetic testing because they say there's a link between the BRCA gene and the pancreatic cancer. So we had it done again in 2016 and again it was negative. 
so you had, they still had you do the genetic testing, even though the family history wasn't very strong. Yes. And I have four sisters and a daughter. So that was kind of why they suggested the genetic testing and it was covered by my insurance. Yeah. Well, that's, (laughs) and so, (laughs) yeah, that's important because I know um, for me, when I went to have my genetic testing done, I think I was the first in my family. So it was, I believe like $3,500. Thankfully my insurance covered it. But when you went back in 2016, did they charge your insurance again for that retest or was that? My insurance covered that okay. in 2016 as well. Okay. And that was at the suggestion of the oncologist. I didn't even know that they would test again. And at the suggestion of my oncologist, he had it done again. Okay. Yeah. I know that the uh, BRCA, I'm not sure about the BRCA1. I would assume it's probably very similar, but at least the BRCA2, there is a connection uh, with the pancreatic cancer. Uh, So I'm not surprised by that. Um, So you mentioned a little bit about chemo, but uh, share a little bit about your course of treatment. So I... Like I said, initially, when I was scheduled for my double mastectomy, I thought that was going to be it. I was going to have a double mastectomy and and just go on. Um, And when they found out I had gone to the lymph nodes, we started having to find an oncologist. So I was not prepared for that. I didn't have an oncologist set up and all that stuff. So we quickly found an oncologist, and the recommendation was to do chemotherapy and to do radiation. So we did the traditional AC of the adromycin cytoxin, uh, four rounds of that, and then four rounds of Taxol, and then 21 rounds of radiation. Okay. So which side did you have cancer in one side? Did you have cancer in both sides? Just on the right side. On the right side. But I opted for a double mastectomy. And where is there any specific reason that you opted for a double mastectomy? I just think I didn't want to have to worry about if it was going to come back or what could happen. Um, It's just a personal choice. I know a lot of people thought that it was, you know, just a little aggressive, especially since at that time, I did not know that it had gone to my lymph nodes. In hindsight, I think I made the right decision because I would have been back in uh, to have a double mastectomy after I found out that it had gone to the lymph nodes. My breast surgeon actually said that if it were up to her, she would have done a lumpectomy. Oh, wow. So, I mean, so that's how small it was and how early they thought that they had caught it. Okay. So... Did your family support your decision in terms of having the bilateral mastectomy? Um, Was it friends, family that kind of questioned it? (laughs) You know, my husband was very supportive of it. My mother was not. I wouldn't say she was unsupportive. She was very supportive of the diagnosis. But I believe that she would have preferred just to do the lumpectomy, it was easier. It wasn't having to have reconstruction. It, the recovery was so much easier. In the end, she knew that I had made the right decision, especially knowing that I would have been back in to get a double mastectomy had I just done the lumpectomy to begin with. Right. Yeah. I always feel like, you know, when we're kind of in the middle of this and we're having to make these pretty heavy decisions in terms of the 
different options for surgery, whether it be a lumpectomy, a single mastectomy, double mastectomy, whatever. It's really easy for people that kind of sit on the outside of that to give their opinions. Um, moms, husbands, partners, brothers, sisters, mm-hmm. whomever. Uh, and so sometimes that's hard when you have, you know, people that aren't necessarily understanding the decision that we're making. Um, but we know that for us, it's it's the thing that's going to make us feel better about all of this experience. So, And I think with my mom, it's a different generation. She's also a generation that has a strong belief that birth control pills cause breast cancer, that people that have had um, reconstruction or not so much reconstruction, but augmentation have had, have a better chance of breast cancer, things like that. So I think, just think it's also a different generation of a thought process on what causes it. And so she believed that if I had reconstruction, that that could actually cause problems later down the road. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I'm glad that over the course of time, she, you know, came to realize that it was actually the better decision for you. So you did the bilateral mastectomy and then did you have reconstruction? I did at the very, at the same time, the plastic surgeon came in and he put the expanders in. Um, we then went every week to have the expanders filled, but then I ended up with a scar opening. And so they had to go in earlier than they thought, and they had to swap out the expanders, and then they did the permanent implants. So the scar opening, was that because of the pressure from the fill of the implants? Did you have the It was skin? a combination. My skin just wasn't healing as well as they had hoped. Um, so, And the skin was so stretched out that the scar opened. And since I couldn't feel anything, and I couldn't see really, it was underneath uh, the it was underneath the breast, so I couldn't see anything. And actually, my oncologist, who I was having a checkup with, said, "Oh, you have your scars opening." And it was the day before Thanksgiving, so he sent me in for he sent me home with antibiotics, and they scheduled my surgery for the day the morning after Thanksgiving. So you had to go back in, and then what did they do at that point in time? Did they? At- that they took out the they expanders. took out the expanders. Yes, they took out the expanders and then they put the permanent implants in, okay. which meant radiation with the implants. Ideally, we would have liked to do the radiation and then done the permanent implants. There's no every doctor does it differently. So some doctors do the implants first and then radiation, and then some do the radiation and then the implants. I think it just depends how they're schooled how they do it. But right. my doctor initially wanted to do the radiation and then the permanent implants. It didn't work out that way, but okay. It yeah. Worked out. I, I feel like, <laughs> I feel like with this, uh, a lot of things don't necessarily work out the way that we kind of think they're going think to right. or hope or plan for. Um, I, you know, there's, there's definitely that, uh, turn the turn of every corner is potentially something new and different, uh, than what we expected. So so then you had the permanent implants put in the day after Thanksgiving. Uh, and then did you do the radiation and the chemotherapy at the same time? The radiation first, chemotherapy first? How did that work uh, out? The chemotherapy was first. And I finished the eight rounds of dose-dense chemotherapy, which just meant it was every other week. And then once I finished that, 
and they did the permanent implants, I had to wait till I was fully healed to start the radiation. And so I started the radiation um, in December of 2011 and finished on Valentine's Day. Okay, so, so. it was about a month? It was, was a m- the uh, correct time frame? Yes. Okay, okay. Yeah, so a month in between the, the permanent implant, getting through the chemotherapy, and then the radiation? Yes, okay. so you have to be fully healed before they can start the radiation. Okay. And so was there any overlap between the chemotherapy and the radiation at all? No. No. Okay. And so what were some of the side effects that you had from the chemotherapy? It wasn't bad. And I know it's different from every for everybody. So I hate to ever say it wasn't that bad. But for me, it, it wasn't terrible. I had a great support system. I was able to work through chemotherapy. I was able to run a half marathon after my second dose wow. of chemotherapy. Uh, it, I, of course, the first days I was sick. Uh, after my first treatment, I ended up at, back at the oncologist's office having to have an IV of fluids because I just got really dehydrated. And I think at that time, I just didn't know what to expect, so I didn't know what to do. But once we got the hang of it and we knew what I needed and how to prepare and how to go to the appointments and what to bring and drink a lot of fluids, things like that. But um, it wasn't as bad as I had thought it would be. Okay, It wasn't great, but it wasn't as bad as I thought. (laughs) Yeah. And again, I think you make the point of everybody experiences different things. And so, you know, while for one person it might be you know, what they would describe as the most horrific experience they've ever had. You know, for some people, it's going to be just like what you said. It wasn't as bad as you had anticipated. Um, so did you did you lose your hair? I lost my hair after the second round. Okay. I had cut my hair prior, cut it really short. My hairdresser, who has been cutting my hair since I was 15, of course, did it for free. <laughs> and two people from my office shaved their heads. Aww. So it was kind of a group effort. My husband was already didn't have much hair anyway to shave. So, <laughs> but it was a group effort. My kids were still very small, so they didn't understand the whole baldness. Mm-hmm. In fact, my youngest, who was in kindergarten at the time, didn't really want me to go to the school. <laughs> but he got over that really yeah. quickly. He got over that. And I... Ended up, like I said, having a great support system when I lost my hair. I wore a wig for a while. And then, you know, we live in Arizona. So once it gets hot, I said, forget it. And yeah, it I was, was thinking just about that. <laughs> yeah, I can't even imagine wearing a wig in Arizona, especially any time that gets close to, you know, the 100 degree mark. Mm-hmm. Um, even at you know. 75, oh, the sure. sun here, it just is way too hot yeah. for a wig. No, I can't. I can't imagine. You mentioned that you weren't really kind of prepared in terms of what to do for chemotherapy, knowing that you need to drink fluids, what to bring with you. What are the things that you need to bring with you? What are some of those? So we we did have a class prior to going to chemotherapy, and I'm sure they went over all of that. But not having thought that I was going to do chemotherapy, I think we were just going through the motions in the beginning, just trying to get through and 
we didn't really know what to expect. So we did go to the class and I'm sure they went over all of that. And I know a lot of people, their suggestion was, oh, make sure you're drinking, drinking, drinking. But once you're there, it's pretty relaxing. You're in this big chair and you're being catered to. And my husband was there. He was bringing me food. One of the things is I, I hated to get up to use the restroom. So drinking more fluids only meant that I'd have to get up and take the little machine with me and go to the restroom. And it just, you get so comfortable. So I think in the back of my mind, I wasn't drinking a lot of water because of that. Right. And the next time I went, it was, well, I don't care how many times I have to go to the bathroom. I'll just roll this thing with me and use the restroom and drink a lot of fluids. Blankets, I, you get really cold. So blankets, I took blankets, puzzles. Uh, yeah, things of, to do. It takes time. Does. I mean, it's not a, you know, 10 minute mm -hmm. kind of thing. It's, it's four hours okay. of wondering what you should do next. And for some reason, our oncologist's office the internet connection was not very good. Oh. <laughs> I don't know why, no but Facebook the internet <laughs> connection was not very good. So, and you get really confused. So I would recommend to people not to text while they're doing chemotherapy. You end up texting the wrong people, the wrong things. Right. <laughs> That's a great tip. Great tip. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the radiation. So you did 21 rounds of radiation. What did you experience with the radiation? What side effects did you have from that? The radiation, when we first started, they told us after you finish about 10 rounds, you'll be really tired. I don't think so much you're physically tired from the radiation, but you're tired from driving there every day. You have to get undressed, you get your robe on, you get on the table, and you know, it's five minutes, and then you're off the table. So I think you're you're tired from having to go there every day. I don't know that it's so much the radiation itself. I got really burned from the radiation, and they suggested aloe. There was definitely things that you could do for it, but very manageable, right. but just tiring of every day, and you're only there for total 15, 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah. So um, did the aloe help? The with aloe the helped with okay. the burning. My skin just wasn't, it was already angry from the surgery. And so it burned quite a bit, but okay. nothing that was not manageable. And then because you had the permanent implants in and then you had the radiation to follow, was there any damage to the implant from the radiation? As far as we know, there's no damage, but my skin has, there's a lot of contracture. There's a lot of scar tissue. So it's very tight because of the radiation. Um, you know, and in hindsight, I don't even know that my skin would have tolerated after the radiation, putting the permanent implants in. Okay. So, so it could have been where my skin would not have even healed from that. Right. So maybe for you, that was the appropriate route to go. Absolutely. Because, you know, again, doctors are very different. They prescribe different sequences, if you will, of, of treatment. Um, so when you talk about contracture, you're talking about the capsulary contracture of the implant, correct? Where yes. it just starts to tighten and uh, the skin around it just, again, becomes very tight, kind of changing, um, I guess, kind of the shape of it a little bit. Is yes. that okay? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And I know for some people that can be pretty significant 
where they have that capsulary contracture and then that results in having to do another surgery. Yes. So for and you, they, that did not happen. They can do if for comfort, he could do surgery again, but it's not to the point where I, I'm willing to live with the way it is. And also, you know, the look of it is very different and I could change that too, but it's, it's something I can definitely live with. Right. Okay. Yeah. And those are, <laughs> yeah, I mean, those are all definitely personal choices. So, you know, you know what works for you and what you're comfortable with and, um, you know, not having the additional surgery, um, you know, if, if that's, that's why we all have these choices to make and those decisions. So, um, so you talked about your kids. So they were pretty young at that time. They were. And uh, what were, what was the conversation that you had with them when you were first diagnosed? Um, so my son was in kindergarten and my daughter was going into fourth grade. The first thing that we assured them was that I had a cancer, that I was going to be okay. I was going to live. I was going to be able to see them graduate and get married. Kids, when they hear cancer, they mostly hear about a grandma or a grandpa or somebody that dies of cancer. So that was one of the things I wanted to make sure was that they didn't think right away cancer and I, especially at that age kids hear cancer and they immediately think of death so Larry and I my husband and I we did get books and we had books ready for them honestly it was not a huge deal it was that one conversation sit down mommy's going to be okay, just things you're going to need to help a little bit more around the house. I might not be able to ride bikes for a while. I might not be able to play games, but we were going to get through it. And I think just not making a huge deal of it was just easier on them. Uh, in fact, I had asked Claire if she wanted to write something at one time we were doing something for the Dragon Boat team on everybody's cancer story. And she said, mom, I honestly don't remember. Wow. So, I mean, I think that's good yeah. that she doesn't have, there was no impact of a time when I was so sick, I couldn't drive or couldn't go to a function or things like that. So. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, and, you know, again, kids are so different. Um, some of them respond in such different ways, but I love the fact that you just sat down and had the conversation with them and, you know, bought some resources to be able to support them just in case just in case there were questions. Um, and is did you have a book or a couple of books that you thought were really helpful for the kids? We just got a couple books that were online through the American Cancer Society. Okay. And one was specific to, uh, I can't remember the name of it, but mommy having an owie on her, on her breast. Okay. And so it was specific to breast cancer. And then another one just that talked about cancer and chemotherapy and losing hair and things like that. So, you know, and they might've looked at them once or twice, but that was it. They, they right. were fine, fine with it. And again, I think it was just not making a huge deal about it. 
they liked the fact that people brought us food. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we had dinner. Every time I had chemotherapy, somebody brought dinner. So they liked that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that is, uh, you got to love kids. Right? <laughs> right? Well, what's for dinner tonight? Not really quite sure. Aunt Susie Somebody's made something. something. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's wonderful. So, um, I mean, that's not wonderful, but, um, you know, from a kid's perspective, that is that wonderful. That is awesome for kids. <laughs> yeah. Um, so in terms of a support system, so you talked about uh, your your husband, you you know obviously shared about your kids. Did you attend a support group? Did you find anything outside uh, during of During treatment, no. I had an awesome support group, not uh, as part as the cancer, but just at work. I had a lot of awesome people who, I work in an office, so there's a lot of the public comes into the office and we share the reception desk. So if the receptionist is out, we all take turns at the reception desk. And my staff wouldn't let me sit at the reception desk. They said, it's too dirty. It's too germy. They were all really great about when people were sick. They would say, why are you sick? You know, Julie can't have be around sick people. So they were mm-hmm. all great about that. Uh, just, you know, picking up work that not making me worry about things. You know, I was gone for chemotherapy Thursday afternoon and Friday. So every other week, and they were just really great about not bothering me with things or calling, just kind of trying to take care of things in the office on their own. Yeah. And that's, that is clutch. (laughs) That is Um, huge. Just because, you know, one less thing to worry about. Right. Exactly. The, I, I know from my experience, thinking about all of the things that I had to do still at work, uh, sometimes were just too overwhelming, and I was just overly focused on that, thinking, oh my gosh, I might, I'm going to have to miss for these X number of appointments, and then I have to go back to work, and I have to get this done. Um, so that's that's awesome that they you know really supported you in that way. Yeah, I think it just makes your recovery that much better if you're having to worry about the things you have to get done at work. It's just more stress, and right. then I think it prolongs your recovery. Sure, absolutely. I wholeheartedly believe <laughs> that any additional stress on top of everything else that you're going through uh, is counterproductive. Yes. <laughs> uh, so eventually you did find a support group, if you will, um, which was the Dragon Boating Team. I did team. find Dragon Boating, so that was after I had finished chemotherapy. I'd always been pretty active, uh, but I would have never thought about Dragon Boating. I ran into them at a, a My Hope Bag function and kind of started slowly. I wasn't positive that it was something that was going to take off for me, but I actually loved it after the first year and kind of getting in the groove of things and realized it was something that I really enjoyed doing and looked forward to. Good. And what, what value did you get from that? What did you, what do you think outside of obviously the physical activity, just because you said you were, you know, so active um, and it is an active sport. So what, what did you get from being a part of and still being a part of that So group? most of the sports that I've done are very solo. So running, um, biking, things like that, yoga, you do it in a group, but it's still solo. I, in fifth grade, I was on a softball team, but from there, I never did a team sport. So being on a dragon boat team and having more of a team sport was definitely something that I didn't do that was out of my regular comfort zone. Uh, 
you know, I would run, but all you do is you show up to a race. And even if you're with people, you don't run with them and nobody's counting on you to show up. So I think with dragon boating, there's a little more accountability to your team to show up and to practice and to work hard. And I had never experienced that. So, and also it's just being on the water with ladies who have traveled your journey, but it's not something that's the main focus. It's not a traditional support group where everybody sits around in a circle and talks about their cancer diagnosis or what they did or, or what they're doing now. But it's nice to be able to also look at the person next to you and say, hey, were you on this medication or that medication? And be able to have that feedback with that not being the focus of the practice. Right. And yeah, I think that's that's kind of the key is knowing that there are people that the entire boat, <laughs> they've been through a similar experience. I talk a lot about just, you know, we all sit behind that pink ribbon, but we all have different stories. But being able to know that there are other people that you can have those conversations with um, if you choose. You know, right. that it's very much a non-traditional support group. Um, and I would imagine that you've made a number of friends through uh, the dragon boating community. Absolutely. And I, I always say that I wouldn't trade the journey for anything. Uh, the people that I've met, the friends I've met through dragon boating and just doctors, nurses, everybody's, you know, touched my life in some way. Yeah. Wow. That's powerful. <laughs> yeah. Um, and to be able to see that, you know, that, that probably one of the most horrific things that you've experienced in your life, one of the most challenging things, but at the same time, you can see that it's impacted your life in positive ways. Um, so I think that that's great. So as we start to wrap this up, um, what would you say to somebody that's been newly diagnosed? What, what tip would you give that person or two tips? What, what would you have to offer? Um, I think it's, it's, you know, your life can change in a second. It's just what you make of it when it changes. And one of the things that I've always said, and just recently I've thought about it more and kind of changed my mind about it, is when people get diagnosed, I always say, well, you'll find out who your real friends are and who sticks around and who doesn't, who's there for you. But in reality, I think that you kind of have to let that go because some people just don't know how to react to it. So I've had very close friends who initially when I was diagnosed, they weren't around at all. And I, you know, they live really close. And then people that I barely knew that would call me and say, hey, I'm going to pick your kids up today and they're going to come to our house and play. I just think it is something to do with the type of person they are, whether they've been touched by somebody with cancer before. And some people just don't know what to do or say, and they don't know to come to you and say, I don't know what to do or say. So they just fall off the radar and you don't see them. But I think just recently I've learned that that's really, that's not why. It's not because they're not a good friend. You just have to give them a chance and maybe even say to them, you know, maybe you don't know what to say, but that's okay. It's okay if you don't know what to say or, or what to do. That's great. That's great. And I, I would share that sentiment. Um, I had a, a friend who I would have considered a best friend uh, at that time in my life, and she really didn't know what to do. Really didn't. She was very disconnected from me. And so for a very long time, I let go of her. I didn't, and you know, talk to her, didn't even try to talk to her. And then 
at some point, I don't ever even remember now, it's been several years, we reconnected and it was just like we had never skipped a beat. And I realized it wasn't because she was a bad friend. It was because she didn't know how to deal with my cancer because she had never had that experience with somebody else that was that close to her. So I think, you know, you make a really, really great point about that because it's very easy to be in a a state of mind where you have this expectation that people are going to pop up and (laughs) do what you expect for them to do, right? They're going to follow the rules that you have written for them and they don't and it's disappointing, So thank you for sharing that. I think that's very um, insightful and hopefully helpful. I'm sure it will be helpful for somebody, somebody else going through this. So, um, so I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your story with the, with me and uh, everybody that's listening. Certainly, you know, all of these stories again, um, everybody's different in the way that we deal with things and the way that, um, you know, our course of treatment is, is different from one person to the next. So I, again, thank you so much for, for being willing to share your story. Thank I appreciate you. it. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Pink Ribbon. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you or anyone you know would be interested in sharing your story, please send an email to podcast at behindthepinkribbon.com. You've been listening to Behind the Pink Ribbon, produced by American Creative Consulting, mixed and mastered at Riverview Podcasting Studios. For more information, please visit designbyacc.com.